powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we jump into the episode, though, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Dr. Patrick Porter of BrainTap. The feedback was unbelievable. And if you had not had a chance to listen to our great interview, I strongly encourage you to listen to it after the conclusion of this episode. And Dr. Porter, thanks again for taking the time to come on the show. So welcome to episode 151, and we have an absolutely incredible interview lined up for you today. And I mean that. We have on the show journalist, photographer, and author, Lalagi Snow. Lalagi will be talking to us about being entrenched in Afghanistan, as well as in other hotspots in the Middle East. We will also be talking to her about her incredibly powerful photo essay entitled, We Are Not Dead, which features portraits of British soldiers before, doing, and after their deployment in Afghanistan. There will be a link to that photo essay in the show notes. We will also be discussing her critically acclaimed book, War Gardens, A Journey Through Conflict in Search of Calm. Lalagi will go down as one of the highlights in the history of the show, as I was completely in awe of what she has accomplished. So let's just go ahead and get her on out here. Duval Nation, please join me in welcoming to the show, calling in today from jolly old England, journalist, photographer, and author, Lalagi Snow. Lally, hello and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Pretty rainy. It is, after all, England and the sun has not yet shone. <laughs> I, I grew up in Wales. I understand the, the, the struggle is always real. Relentless, relentless. <laughs> so I am. I start my interviews off the same way. And that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world up to this point? Ooh, interesting question. Uh, I had my second child in the first week of the UK lockdown. So on the one hand, it was really difficult because of that. I had an 18-month-year-old boy as well at the same time. On the other hand, it was probably the best time to expand a family because you're kind of on a lockdown anyway when you have small children. Right. And then we had our third son, our third child, 18 months after my daughter was born. So it's kind of been a permanent lockdown anyway. And sometimes I look back and think, oh, yeah, COVID. <laughs> well when they that's, get older it'll be for some great stories well exactly and uh, that said i'm very glad the face mask wearing is over and the queuing is over and the, you yeah. can go to a pub and yeah yeah so every journey has a beginning where were you born and what was it like to grow up there i was born in northern ireland because my father was a soldier i did not grow up there because we were posted to hong kong shortly after that so I grew up a little bit in Hong Kong. Then being a being a child of the forces, we were posted back to the UK, then back to Hong Kong. Then he left the army. And then we spent a bit of time in Germany because he had a different job. And then primarily, then we were back in the UK. 
um, and a little bit in France, but nothing to do with the army. And what was it like growing up? I mean, you know, you look back on life as a child and sometimes you think I had a great childhood and sometimes you think I hate my parents. <laughs> but I wasn't, um, yeah, I had a, had a, had a probably in all things considered, I had a, a nice childhood. There were ups and downs, but you know, a loving family, no breakups, and there was a roof over our head, meals on on the table. So, what are your favorite memories from your time at the London College of Communications? London College of Communication was a very austere kind of brutalist building on the outskirts of a roundabout in a very bombed out area of South London for your American listeners. And it's one of the most ugliest buildings that I'd ever set foot in. But there was so much beauty inside because it was a centre of creativity. And there were people doing advertising, marketing, obviously photography, different strands of photography, creative writing. I don't even think the building stands anymore. I think they redeveloped it into like posh flats or something. But I think one of my overarching memories was the amazing photographers who came to speak to us as part of our sort of master's degree mm-hmm. so we had someone people like Judah Paso came to talk to us who was um, a wonderful photographer who um, spent a lot of time in the Middle East but another guy called Homer Sykes who I just love the name Homer Sykes uh, <laughs> he came to talk to us about his work and at the same time around that time I started working for a British photographer called Tom Stoddart who sadly died last year and between I don't know I think that was sort of grounding in photography between all of these great names um, of that, it was a very short time, really. A master's degree in the UK is only a year. Um, was the just the access to these wonderful photographers and creators that you're surrounded with in amongst the kind of this brutalist 1950s building that was built shortly after the war? Hmm. What about journalism appealed to you so much? I really wanted to find things out for myself. I think that was what it was, and I still do. I think I'm just, you know, I quite like being at the center of the action and seeing for myself what was going on and never taking anybody's reports for granted I suppose and plus the kind of the adventure of being abroad and you know I'm not going to lie when you're reading books about I don't know Robert Kappa or um, the famous Vietnam photographers um, Larry Burroughs, Don McCullen there's a certain kind of like sexiness to it the reality is the absolute opposite i mean it's the least sexy job you can do in the world you don't wash for ages sometimes if you're in the field you don't you know you're in the field you're working really hard um it's scary at times um but the but i think what appealed i think was just knowing that what i was seeing was what i was seeing through my own eyes and seeing it for myself and taking everything on board in my own way what inspired you to entrench yourself in Kabul during one of the most turbulent times in that nation's history? Well, I was doing a photography project on soldiers before, during, and after an operational deployment. And I got grounded in Kandahar Airfield and there, there found out about the first female cadets who joined the Afghan National Army. And this, to me, sounded pretty interesting. So I went back, pitched the idea to a British newspaper called The Telegraph and they decided to take it up as one of their cover stories. But in order for me to do that, I had to do something called a hostile environment training course. And they're kind of, I don't know, they're like, they're run by ex-SAS people in Hereford and they kind of do fake kidnappings and, you know, lots of first aid when you're going to hostile environments, basically. And there met a really great guy who was a journalist based in Kabul full time. 
and we got on really well. He said, hey, if you ever come to Kabul, and I said, well, I am actually, I'm coming to do this story on the Telegraph. He said, well, come and stay. And I did. And I met some wonderful people. I started to get a lot of work, which as a journalist trying to, as a foreign sort of freelance foreign correspondent photojournalist, trying to get out of London is pretty difficult. And it was a really fascinating time. And unlike what you see on the news, what I was seeing on the news at the time, which is obviously Afghanistan is a dangerous place. It's dusty. People are trying to kill you, yada, yada, yada. There were these moments of absolute beauty. I mean, it's Kabul is a beautiful place. It's very different to, to what you might imagine from the news. I think when you see pictures from of Kabul, there's a very standard image that is taken from uh, a mountain in on the outskirts of Kabul called TV Hill. It's where all the television stations had their masts. And you, you go up there and you, you can have a really beautiful GV of Kabul. And then you obviously wait for the helicopter to go past. And I think pretty much every documentary I've ever seen starts with that shot, including my own, actually, I think. I always think of Kabul as being a bit like Atlantis. It's sort of sunk between these mountains. There's a layer of dust over it pretty much at all times, which makes it quite hostile to live in breathing wise and it just felt like this forgotten lost world that no one really understood and yet to live there you're really part of the community uh, in, in as much as you can be as a foreigner um you you get around you know i could walk around um, which i often did and um, before it got too dangerous um i lived off grid and I had made some amazing friendships and i only went for a, for, for a week and i stayed for years i stayed for almost five, six years. Um, and it just, it's a very intoxicating, magical place. And I met my husband there as well, which is, uh, we have this shared love of the place. In fact, even our children, even though they're very young, they keep talking about Afghanistan and when they can go. You have an extraordinary gift of merging arts with incredibly personal and important journalism. Where does the line between arts and journalism intersect? Gosh, that's an interesting question. I was talking to somebody about that today, about some work in Ukraine. I think journalism has to be the facts, right? It's got to be the story. It's got to be the 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 who, what, when, where, why. That's the basic news story. It's you know, man was seen on bridge, or man man killed from bridge, or um, uh, you know, who, who, what, when, where, why. Basically, I think when you bring art into it, that becomes a more personal. That is, it's just more personal because it's an interpretation. Where does it intersect? I mean, how long is a piece of string? If you take someone, someone like I mentioned him before, Robert Kappa, a famous photographer in the in the 20s, 30s, 40s, his work is now seen as being art, right? In the same way that the Vietnam photography, a lot of or a lot of Afghan photography now is being seen as art. Simon Norfolk did these huge, huge, huge pieces of, of photographs on large format cameras in Afghanistan in the early days in the 2000s. He also works as a paparazzi photographer under a different name. So <laughs> there lies the rub. So I guess when you bring art into journalism, it's interpretation, then it's your own take on something. So I first learned who you were during my time reading about some of the experiences my own brother went through uh, when he spent a very long time in Korangal Valley in the in the army. I stumbled across your article on ABC News, which was titled We Are Not Dead, which features portraits of British soldiers before, during, after their deployment in Afghanistan. So first off, you know, obviously this is an absolutely powerful piece of work from you. Where did the idea to come do this come from? Uh, it came from the first time I did an embed. As, as discussed, I come from a military family. 
Um, so the first time I went to Afghanistan was in 2007. I was still a student then. I was doing my master's. And my cousin was in the army and he said, oh, I'm, he was like a brother to me. He said, oh, I'm being deployed out there. And I sort of rather glibly said, oh, I'd love to go. And he said, well, why don't you write and ask if you can come? And this was at a time when everyone was just interested in Iraq. No one cared about Afghanistan in, in the UK at least. And so I wrote to his commanding officer and uh, he said, yeah, we'd love to have you along, come along. But you need to do this is before the Ministry of Defence made you do these SAS course training things. But you need to come and do some, you know, familiarisation with us. So I did a little a little bit of training here and there with them. And I went ended up going to Iraq with the other bit of the same regiment. They were all deployed at the same time and the Falklands. And it, what occurred to me is because I got to know them and some of their families, before going out was when I first when I then linked up with them in Afghanistan it, again 2000 it was 2006 was it either way 2006 seven. when I then linked up with them uh, three months later I was really amazed at how they had changed but also how their psychology had changed and then again when they came back because I was they went to say hi when they came back they were all based in Germany again that changed and at the time, a lot of photography that was coming out of Afghanistan was a very traditional kind of Marlborough Man style, thousand yard stairs. And all the stuff that was coming out about the, the guys being brought back in body bags was very standardized kind of, you know, Bill Baggins, a great soldier, would have gone far, died doing something that he loved. And there was no real substance or context. And having seen that change, both psychologically and physically, I really wanted to document that. And that's really how the idea came about. But it took me another couple of years to put it in motion because I was a freelancer, the war was hotting up, the Ministry of Defence didn't want to sponsor somebody like me to go out again. I didn't have, you know, it's expensive to keep me fed and watered in theatre in a dangerous place. Right. So they, were, they weren't going to commit to that for a while. So I had to kind of dance it out a bit. But again, I got to know one regiment really, really well. I did about three months of quite intensive training with them at this point to really get to know them. And um, I'm very glad I did because I'm still friends with some of the guys now. How up for it were the soldiers in the beginning? I let them choose. I wasn't in a, I mean, I held, had a whole company of guys to kind of follow. And I said, when I did the training with them, they got to know them and they said, okay, you're all right. I didn't, they didn't mind. I, they saw I didn't mind kind of dossing down and getting grubby and sharing cigarettes and <laughs> whatever. And they didn't, what was quite nice about being a girl among, among so many boys is that I don't, I wasn't a threat, so I could ask them about quite personal things like their families or their kids or their parents or I don't know what they did, what they were like at school for some of the younger boys. And they didn't mind asking, whereas I think answering, whereas I think if you're a guy, it would have been a bit different. Some of them said, you know, and I, I shot every frame individually away from other people. And I said, if you're not up for it, I don't mind. And some of them were like, no, I can't be bothered. It's like, no, fair enough, completely. And some of them then really were then they like fine I'll do it and then I think by the time they saw the change all the way through they were really glad that they did it one guy is I mean, it was a long time ago that these were that these came out one of the one of the guys who's a friend now he uh, he's actually really haunted by them and he doesn't like looking at them because it reminds him of a, of a time when bad things happen that was about my next question you know what was the reaction from pretty much everyone when they f saw the finished project I mean um, I'm, I think all shock and awe and like a lot of joking and bantering, like, oh, you, you know, you look better then, or, you know, you, you, you're such a fatty or whatever it is, because obviously you lost lots of weight. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think some of them kind of 
try not to think back to those times because it was an intense time and it's it's in the past now um and i think a lot of them are still trying to to deal with that as well because it can take at least 10 years for ptsd to emerge as well so i think some of them are still going through a pretty tough time my brother is absolutely 100 percent. so yeah so um like i said the article incredibly powerful and what was the response when the project was put out into the world when i first so i shot this in 2010 i couldn't get it out for love nor money nobody cared nobody was interested i was pretty unknown i was living in Kabul then at the time um doing other freelance work i was trying to get it as an you know as an ex exhibit somewhere because i thought that would be really powerful no one was interested and um i think the only reason it went it got I was very lucky that one of my friends works at the BBC, he's quite famous now, and he'd written something on Facebook about uh, soldiers in Glasgow who were suffering from PTSD. And I posted a link to, I think I think maybe one publication. Oh, ABC News took it up. I got a friend at ABC News who really liked it and he, he, he what made it go. It was on ABC News, one of their TV shows, one of their night, mm-hmm. I guess, emissions or whatever, and then online as well. So I posted a link to that and he was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And that's, I think, why the BBC took it up. And then it went mental for about a week or two. Everyone was trying to publish it, which was crazy because no one, and also nobody wanted to pay for it. I was like, hold on a second. I self-funded my way all the way through this. I flew myself to and from various posts to get to where I needed to be. Admittedly, the MAD helped me as well to kind of, you know, sponsor me out there. But no, I'm not giving my work away for free. It's funny thing about photography; everyone thinks it's, you know, free. And then, and then it quietened down again. And every now and then, it, I get a, a kind of like somebody posts it, it goes viral again or whatever. And then mm. I get people saying, oh, "I've written a play about it, or I've written a That's ballet awesome. about it, or I've I've animated it to music." Um, so I mean, it, it, it still now it still you know still seems to have legs, as it were. Yeah, like I said, it's, this is how I dis- discovered who you were is basically through that article. And I'm very glad I did, to be honest with you, because it was very, very powerful, very moving. And that being said, you know, I read that your photos were on display at the U.S. Smithsonian. Is that correct? They were, yeah. Uh, <laughs> photos and videos. Um, at the, I worked for a short time doing some video work for the Turquoise Mountain Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they had a big show on at the Freer Sackler um, part of the Smithsonian. Um, so I got to go to DC, which was fun. <laughs> okay, Devon Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview with Lalagi Snow. Message to take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at 
podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun with Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, available on all major streaming platforms, and visit my site at patrickbakermusic.com. This is Erica, host and guide of the YouTube vlog Mon Jardin au Coin. I invite you to join me as we explore the many joys of gardening, such as sowing seeds, raising plants, and the reward of harvesting. If gardening is something you're interested in, or you just want to follow my adventures and receive tips to help any novice break into starting their own garden, you can find Mon Jardin au Coin on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I look forward to having you hang out with me in my little garden on the corner. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
at Benjamin C. Sledge. Welcome back to episode 151 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our powerful interview with journalist, photographer, and author, Lollagy Snow. So I want to talk to you about your film you directed, Afghan Army Girls. You know, mm-hmm. first off, what was the decision to take it on? And the second question is, you know, how difficult was it to actually create? Well, the decision to take it on was, it was a unique opportunity to, to I mean, I, I wrote, this is a story I wrote and photographed for, for, for the Telegraph magazine. And then uh, uh, a very good friend of mine works in documentaries and suggested we try and get got the access. So it took about a year to get the access to go through the official channels. And in the end, I think I just wore them down. I was just, you know, I was living in Kabul. I was just turning up all the time, just being like, hi, just wondering if I've got the access yet. Um, and then how difficult it was. I mean, I lived with these girls. Um, they had a 20-week, was it? Yeah, it was a 20-week training course. I lived with them for the first 10 weeks for four days a week in their barracks and then was at my own house in Kabul for the rest of the time. Um, and then the, la- the, la- the last 20 weeks, I didn't do as, as intense a, a shoot. So I got, I was very much embedded part of the furniture. But interesting, I, I mean, I didn't speak Dari, which is the the, the lingua franca. Um, so, I mean, I got to speak it quite well towards the end, but um, I didn't really know what I was shooting half the time um, and got it translated laterally. So um, that's not kind of best practice, I think, in documentary making, but that, that's the way it had to be because I couldn't take, I could take a translator with me, but then it became, I can girls chat a lot. Um, <laughs> and, and they were, you know, 19, 20 year old girls chatting about the nail varnish or makeup or whatever. And then, you know, there was another Afghan girl chipping in and we're like, hey, hey, can we uh, focus? <laughs> so um, I slept in a dorm with them. I mean, it was pretty, looking back on it, like how on earth did I do that? Um, and then again, the uptake was quite tricky because, uh, well, in the end, Channel Four bought it. Um, but again, it was it was quite quite tricky because you had to find the characters, and they were all amazingly strong characters, and they all had tragic, devastating stories and really uplifting stories at the same time. Um, and then, it, but then, because it, it had to be slightly dumbed down, I guess, for for telly, and there were loads of st- there were loads of. If I were to do it again with the experience I now have making films I do it in a totally different way I think um and it just channel four for anyone listening who isn't British is quite a mainstream um tv channel basically and so there was a lot of over explaining um and sadly the film can't be shown um online anywhere because it features these girls whose lives are at risk and in the very first instance there's a scene where a couple of the girls are dancing with an American um, uh, Air Force pilot girl, um, female soldier, and they're just having a laugh, you know, dancing around their dorm room. But it's taboo for girls to be seen dancing in Afghanistan. So mm. we couldn't have it anywhere online. It was shown twice, I think, in the UK. And that was it. And I can't even share it anywhere now, I don't think. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing you say that about Channel 4. When I was growing up in the UK, and this is the 80s, Channel 4 was, I think, the only thing I remember Channel 4 having was The Snowman. And then after that, you know, I, I don't know don't know why, that this, but I remember BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV, and that was it, four channels was all we had. And then when I moved to America, Sky came out, and that was the new, the new, and now the standard, I guess, going, you know, forward for everybody. So what was the reaction to the film like? 
Oh, it was uh, it was really good. I mean, it got really good reviews. But yeah, I mean, it was it was seen, you know, blinking, you miss it kind of thing. Mm. Um, so it, yeah, people who you know the screenings they did made you know people laugh and cry at the same time. So it got great write ups. Um, but one of those funny things that we'll never really see the light of day anymore. But it's incredibly inspiring film though when i do watch bits of it i'm very proud because i think i did help to give for the short airing that it had a voice uh, albeit in not the way i would have done it now and to some pretty brave girls so i want to talk to you about your fantastic book called war gardens which i read online has nothing to do with gardening no. <laughs> uh, I, it's a journey through conflict in search of calm. What an incredible, interesting premise in itself. Can you tell my listeners about it? Sure. So War Gardens was a photography portrait. Um, I began working in Kabul as a foreign correspondent. So, that I was, so while I was making, Af while I finished making Afghan Army Girls, I stuck around in Kabul. I was working for the Times. I was shooting for Wall Street Journal occasionally, Washington Post. Um and stringing for the British press as well. Stringing is when you're a journalist, but you don't have a proper contract, you're just doing stories here and there. Um, and I'd been there for a while and I started to get a bit jaded because one of the reasons I, I suppose I, I went to journalism in the first place was to try and help people understand from an unbiased point of view about what was going on with the conflict. And, you know, having been there for how many years it was by then, nothing had changed we still had troops there i guess we're you know we this was before the troop withdrawal was announced um and people were still dying and it was still really dangerous and there wasn't there seemed to be a stalemate and i just was really depressed by it and the photography that i was doing was everything from you know olympic hopefuls to soldiers looking sad or scared or um people dying of malnourishment and again, nothing was nothing was changing. People weren't reacting in any way and news was becoming really prosaic. No one cared anymore. And um, I thought, well, how do you make people sit up and listen? You try and you shock them. You can't shock them by showing them a dead person. Can you shock them by showing them something beautiful and then have them read about what's going on? And so that's what I set out to try and do. I just was like, well, Afghans are known they're, they're warlike ways, but they have amazing gardens. They're incredible gardeners. And there are like nurseries on the sides of the road going up into the Hindu Kush mountains. There are, you know, when every inside every compound, there are beautiful gardens across Helmand or Kandahar and Mazari um, Sharif, Herat, Kabul, all around. And, you know, there, I spoke to um, an old friend who'd lived there in the 80s and he said the Taliban were more likely to be bothered by tending the rose garden than they were checking your Red Cross you know, stamps to go on a flight across the country. And so I thought, well, this is what I'm going to try and do. So I said about interviewing or photographing gardens and interviewing gardeners and trying to get just civilians. I was not very discriminate about who I wanted to interview. It was just civilians, like, tell me your story. A lot of people don't like talking about, about their story, but you talk about their garden and then suddenly a story comes out. And then um, I took it down to Helmand and I went to find um, the, all the combat troops have been withdrawn by that point because I'd spent a lot of time in Helmand, I went back to the same area of operation where I took the portraits. And um, uh, I had the protection of a tribe um, and an elder and spoke to members of the Taliban and um, got their take on things. Um, but also members of the Taliban who 
gardens or you know had a garden mosque a mosque garden or he had a poppy field or a big orchard so my my uh, definition of garden was quite wide and then I didn't really do anything with it I think I, I published it in a German magazine at some point and then there must have been a war that broke out in uh, the Middle East that I'd gone to cover because I, I every now and then I'd take a break from Afghanistan and go somewhere else and then come back again yes there was an incursion in Gaza of course there was and um, having been there before in 2009 I remembered how built up Gaza is it's an incredibly densely populated place but again, Palestinians are farmers by inherently, and there's where there's a will, there's a way, there's always a place to farm. And so I took the project to Gaza, went the length and breadth of Gaza, which is effectively an open air prison. It's a very tiny plot of land, and found people doing all sorts of creative things like vertical gardening and hydroponic gardening, and um, you know, guerrilla gardening, and um, you know, sending the having beehives on the on the border so that bees would go off into Israel to get things anyway then took it off to took it back to Israel a few years later to the West Bank and spoke to people in the kibbutz as well because you have to be the along Gaza that you know the people living in the shadows of the the Qassams the rockets are coming out of, of Gaza from Hamas militants it's terrifying if you live in a kibbutz along there so I spent some time in the kibbutz community speaking to people there like what it's like to live next to Gaza and trying to re-narrate the war, because that is a conflict that has been going on for decades and hasn't really changed. Yeah, then the, the same in the West Bank, which is a, a, a different bit of the same conflict. And then war broke out in Ukraine. And a, another friend said, oh, you've got to go to Donetsk. They're crazy about roses there. It's a city of a million roses. And so the project there, because I didn't get, but that was bizarre because it was a very hot war. It had just broken out when I first went. And people couldn't believe that I turned up. I'd gone all that way to... The photograph gardens and, and as a New York Times journalist who was sort of apoplectic with I don't know he was like you're in a photograph gardens don't you know there's a war yeah. <laughs> like, oh I know I know I know that's what I'm here to do it's a way of narrating war in, in a way that is a bit more accessible than a hundred people killed in a railway crash it's more personal it's and it's again a way of finding beauty because some of the people I spoke to were dangerous and not very nice and quite quite hostile but there's a beauty in what they say sometimes as well especially when it's within the metaphor of a garden and a garden is just the opposite to, to, to war it's life when everything around you is death and so it took me a long time to do and I just sat on it as a photographic thing and then I was approached to write it as a as a sort of a memoiry kind of travelogue so it, it's a funny one because it's it's nothing to do with gardening mm-hmm. But it's, right. it's, it's annoying. My local bookshop has it on the gardening shelves. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about gardening. <laughs> Maybe it's the wrong title. It's very much a history of war by the people living through it. <laughs> okay, so this is a very personal question. As a veteran myself of the Afghanistan war, uh, I've asked all the other uh, combat veterans who have been on the show this next question. And that is, what were your thoughts when you saw the fall of Afghanistan and the end of the war? Oh my gosh. I was seven months pregnant. But regardless, oh my God, it was just so emotional. We just cried, cried and cried. Pretty bad. And we think about it. What a waste. What a waste. So, what is next for you? I've just finished writing my second book, which is more about gardening because I live in a rural part of England now. But it's about allotments, which I guess in the US is community gardens. Mm-hmm. But so I, I have I live in a small village of three hundred people, 
and in a small cottage and I've been trying to raise my kids so that they have more of an understanding about food where it comes from um, because we're quite used to just I'll oh, just get it quickly from the supermarket so I got an allotment and to try and teach myself how to grow vegetables and things like that and it's a lot cheaper to grow your own vegetables or so I thought <laughs> depending on how good you are <laughs> so it's called my family and other seedlings which is a take on a Gerald Darrell my family and other animals and it's a, a year on a Dorset allotment about kind of raising a family raising an allotment then also a history of land and the allotment movement in, in the UK is is very old it goes back to kind of the enclosures uh, with it pre-existing that actually really which uh, sort of carved up England it's very sort of so it was a sort of a big movement away from a different type of farming and then uh, created a lot of very poor poor a very, very very poor class of people and then the allotments were kind of given back to a poor class of people to to grow their own vegetables but then they're kind of beset by things like the potato famine and then now post-covid there's a huge resurgence in allotments and it's partly to do with people appreciating being outside and it's partly to do with um you know the mental health uh, uh, sort of stress busting effects of being outside and having your hands in the soil and it's partly doing the rising, the rising cost of living of actually a bag of salad or, you know, whatever is two pounds or five dollars or whatever. And actually next to nothing to grow your own. And it's really easy for something. Mm. So it's about that. Remind me if my math might be wrong and my history may be completely wrong. But wasn't allotments also given to returning soldiers from World War One? Yes. Yeah, that's I think they were. And I think I wrote I wrote that bit of history quite quickly in the in the in my book. I I believe they were. They were like there was like allotments for heroes sort of thing. Instead of you know in the UK we've got help for heroes. I think it was like land for heroes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because well a there was a huge unemployment crisis right. um, in the 1920s, but also people had people needed something to do, and it, it, you could feed yourself and be be outside, be amongst the community. Um, which there is mostly an allotment as a community of people and get to feed yourself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, there's going back to the gardens of, you know, one of the, one of the garden projects I was interested in that then didn't work, didn't, it, it went bust, but it was about giving veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq access to gardening as a way of uh, combating the stresses that they were facing. So it's a, a sort of a well-known, a well-known thing. So it's often when I say, you know, to, friends or new acquaintances or you know they say what's your book about and they go allotments and they see their eyes glazing over <laughs> <laughs> the proviso the, the reserve of the old men still but no it's there's a lot going on inside the just a simple allotment that's crazy so as we enter the final phase of the interview i always like to ask one fun question and obviously you just mentioned gardening but what else do you like to do for fun or to relax oh my god i have no time myself <laughs> three kids under four <laughs> um what do i need to do i mean i do actually really enjoy doing gardening stuff now um i really enjoy it's gonna sound a bit strange i really enjoy um restoring furniture um mostly because the furniture that i buy is always broken um and that's why i buy it because it's always cheap <laughs> but i get quite a lot of i get a kick out of making old bringing old things back to life and painting things i've been uh been repainting over where my children have scribbled on walls and i find it oddly therapeutic painting walls mm. and then uh sports i love swimming 
Um, I did love running. My knees no longer love me for running. Um, and long walks. I live in a beautiful part of the country, um, of the UK, where you can go for these long walks if your effing children allow you to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's quite, quite a quiet existence. Um, nice. And of course, going to the pub every now and then. But it's so bloody expensive over here. Yeah, it's cheaper to... It's cheaper to buy your carling from Tesco's and bring it home than it is to go to the pub. It really is. Oh my god, yeah. we went last night. It's crazy. Like twenty dollars. Yeah. It'd be like twenty dollars for a pint and a glass of wine. That's crazy. I mean yeah. So what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online, follow your work? Well, I am on Instagram, but I just I don't post that often anymore just because I keep forgetting. So it would be at Lalagy Snow on instagram l-a-l-a-g-e snow and i will be posting more about the book forthcoming i don't do snap is it snapchat i don't do snapchat at all what's the other one tiktok yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of i'm generation whatever it is i don't understand it my nieces are all over it don't get it <laughs> <laughs> i'm still um, struggling with twitter so. <laughs> <laughs> i know i just i forgot my login for twitter about four years ago and it keeps asking me to reset it and i just, I just no i don't have time <laughs> So I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the entire people of earth? Oh, that's a really difficult one. Uh, just slow down. Stop looking at your phones. That's what I'd say. Stop looking at your phones. Look up and see the sky. The book is War Gardens, A Journey Through Conflict in Search of Calm, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books online. Lolly, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I know we had to get our schedules back and forth, but this has been a real thrill, and absolute best of luck to you in the future. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Derek. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 151. That's right. I want to thank Lalagi for taking the time to come on the show. Like I said, a lot of stars had to align to have her on the show, and I'm so grateful we can make that happen. There will be a link to her work in the show notes, so please do check that out. Lalagi, like I said, you're an incredible woman, and I am so incredibly honored to have had you on my show. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I do have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there, and we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDevallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you will be taken to our store on TeePublic. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, if, like Lollagy, you're interested in gardening, I strongly encourage you to seek out my friend Erica Wilson and check out her gardening show, Majadana Kwan, or give episode 41 a good listen. Nostra, God bless. And see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. 
please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.